0: The, the literature of early Buddhism, a lot of, of what I share comes from early Buddhism and, and a lot of the literature of early Buddhism are these discussions or these interchanges that happen between the Buddha and another practitioner or, or uh, another person. And, and it's through those, those interchanges that we get a lot of the teachings. And tonight what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you one of these interchanges and see if we can make our way through it and come to understand it in terms of our own lives, in terms of the things that we struggle with, And hopefully in terms of maybe what our vision is for uh, a different or a a deeper way of being in the world. So in light of that, um, once upon a time, there was this celestial being, the the, the child of a a celestial being. And, And as it said, in the far extreme of the night, the celestial being's extreme radiance lighting up the entirety of Jetta's Grove, where the Buddha was, um, went to the Buddha to ask him a question. And this was his question. He said, uh, Venerable One, is it possible by traveling, can one travel to reach the far end of the world where one can find freedom, where one can get a feeling of freedom, So what is he asking here? I just want to stop here, this this question, and maybe make it relevant. It's, it's kind of, you know, can I get to the end of this challenging world uh, that I live in and actually find freedom? You know, kind of the, is there somewhere over the rainbow, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where uh, your dreams really do come true. Or another way is, is there a place I can go where I'll have more of a sense of, of real freedom in my life? Maybe Flagstaff isn't working. Maybe I can move to Sedona or, or to California or to Canada. Or sometimes what we're looking for is finding the end of our troubles is maybe it's that relationship. If I really find that relationship, then I'll have that taste of freedom. Is that work? Does it work that way? Or if I get out of this relationship, is that gonna be where I find my real freedom? Or am I gonna find real freedom in some new diet or some exercise plan? Or am I only gonna find freedom when I get healthier? So I feel like this is what Rohitasa is, is asking the Buddha, is—is is it, does it work this way? Can I find a place, can I find some situation where, where I'm gonna f- experience real freedom in my life? I need this, I feel confined in my life and I want to find that place. Right? Where somewhere over the rainbow where troubles melt like mountain drops. High above the chimney top, something like that. Doesn't it work that way? And the Buddha basically, more gently than I'll say it, basically says, no. <laughs> uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> Sorry. And, and I wanna point out, I wanna give a caveat to this. All of these things that I mentioned at times might have real benefit to, to us. Uh, sometimes we find a relationship or a community or a friendship that really supports our lives. Or sometimes the best thing that our life needs is to get out of certain relationships. Having a healthy diet is really great. Having an exercise plan. So all the things I mentioned, right, they can, they can support our lives. But if you notice, if I zero in and I think that that's gonna be the ultimate answer then I'm in trouble. (coughs) Have you ever noticed that in your life? Am I the only one who (laughs) had the thought that the promise of some perfect relationship or some perfect job out there was going to make me really happy? It doesn't seem to happen that way. And so I resonate with what the Buddha is saying to Rohitasa, and also I resonate with Rohitasa. I know that urge of wanting to find that place somewhere over the rainbow where where it works out, where it feels like it's going to work out at least much better than it is right now. So I do want to emphasize, these are important supports in our life, and I speak speak about them often on Monday nights. But I feel like the Buddha is trying to point out that there might be a different flavor of freedom, a deeper flavor of freedom, that we can also begin to taste in our lives if we start to look at our lives or relate to it differently. And then Rohitasa goes on, he says, you know, it's so amazing that you're sharing uh, this with me because, you know, in a previous life, this is all I did is I tried to get to the end of the world, to the place where I could find freedom. And he said that I I lived for a hundred years and that's all I was trying to do, was trying to get to the end of the world where I could taste freedom. And I think that's an important part of this this narrative, is to hear that, that I can spend my entire life with this outward looking, trying to make my life perfect in some way, and it never works out. And probably many of you know, I know people that have done this, of, you know, tried to escape some way of really looking for a deeper way of, of being, of not even wanting to, to investigate that, of just trying to skate on through with some kind of, you could say, superficial happiness that we're sold again and again in this consumeristic world. And then the Buddha continues. He says, As I told you, friend, you know, it's not possible to find freedom by coming to the end of the world in that sense and finding that place somewhere over the rainbow. It doesn't happen that way. Yet at the same time, he says, it is just within this fathom-long body right here with its perception and cognition that I declare there is the world, the arising of the world, the end of the world, which is freedom, and the path leading to the end of the world. So how do we understand this teaching? Because it sounds, can, be, can sound quite confusing. That it's not the world out here, but somehow there's a world in here within this body. This world that's created through perception and cognition. And that somehow freedom can be found by, by bringing an end to the certain kinds of worlds that this mind creates. So the first thing I want to point out is, is right, he's, he's pointing to an inward journey Not an outward journey, but some kind of inward journey that's so important. About some kind of world that's within these bodies, or you could say within the subjective experience. So I want to point this out again. It's not the world out there. It's more the world of my subjective experience, or or, or my worlds of subjective experience and bringing an, an end to a very specific subjective experience or spe- specific world. That is, the, the world that, um, uh, that confines me, that shackles me, that, that actually brings suffering into my life. That's the world that the Buddha is so interested in bringing an end to. So this begs the question of, have you noticed the worlds your mind creates that gives you that sense of confinement? Have you noticed how your mind creates a world again and again that shackles you, that binds you, that takes away your freedom? And it might be creating the world that I'm unlikable, and then I walk around, and it's like, I feel like I'm unlikable. So I see that in everyone's eyes, that I'm not going to be able to belong here or feel accepted or nobody's going to like me. Or it can be the world that I'm not good enough, and then I see that all around me. It almost feels like that's what the, 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 the world is telling me again and again and again is how I'm not good enough or how I'm not smart enough or how I'm deficient in this or that. Or the world that something's always wrong with me. Or I can't make it on my own. Have you noticed these worlds? That your mind creates? And the confinement of it? I notice the time when I see it is often when there's something stressful that happens in my life. It's like my mind goes, it's like the go-to like uh, world of Let's make Brian feel even more horrible now that the world is stressful, feels things are stressful. And there it is. There is a world and it can feel so real. Oh, nobody really does like me. I can feel it all the time. And even if I know it, it feels like it's such a strong reality. This is the world of me in a way that confines and shackles And it's something just to reflect upon, maybe now and also later, is what are the worlds that your mind creates that binds you? Can you become curious about that throughout the day? And maybe if we only did it to ourselves, it wouldn't be that bad, but have you noticed how we do it to others? It's like it's this habitual tendency that we're doing to ourselves and to others. Saturday night, we had our uh, diversity movie night, and it was really, I, I found it really quite powerful and moving, this movie called Including Samuel, and it was about um, uh, the, the world of uh, disability. And, and it was about a, a child who had uh, a cerebral palsy, but also there were some other people that they um, had interviewed and were in the movie too. And I think that was such a a perfect way of beginning the movie and having that as the theme. Uh, Because it's amazing, we see somebody in a wheelchair that looks has a body that looks very differently than us, and there can be an assumption, right, that they're not very smart, they're a drain on society rather than someone who can contribute to society. Just because we see a certain body in a wheelchair, we can have these assumptions. And it can happen so immediately these kinds of assumptions that we create a world about who that person is, and we haven't even said a word to them. They haven't even said a word to us. And here the mind has created a world with really serious ramifications for for ourselves and others. You know, they had this uh, one fellow by the name of Keith Jones, who is a a hip-hop artist and a disability rights activist who has cerebral palsy. he was describing what it was like to be in a, uh, a special education school. So he was separated from everyone. And where he said, really, the extent of his education that he was given was basically coloring with crayons. And then finally he said, he said, I was like, can I get some math over here? <laughs> he said, I felt like I was in a nursing home he said of his elementary school. And that's when his life began to take off is when he uh, moved into uh, um, uh, the, a general education uh, school rather than a special education school. But it was because of, of how he was seen that he was confined in that way. There was a world that had been created about who he was that was just pushed upon him. And also he he also mentioned that Uh, being a black man in a wheelchair with uh, cerebral palsy also had another kind of world, a racialized world, that would come upon him. He said so often people would meet him and assume, even before knowing anything about him, that he must have been involved in a gang and must have been shot. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the world we create because we have racialized minds about what black men are and what they've experienced, especially if they're in a wheelchair. Have you seen how your mind creates a whole world about the people you see? We do this, and I think it's such an interesting experiment around people with disability. When you see that, what does your mind do to that? Because it can happen so quickly. I can see my mind do that, where it can have this assumption about the intelligence of someone. And I can see it done to people. For example, my, my father had polio, so, so the way he would walk, especially older on, now he's, um, uh, now he's um, mostly in a wheelchair, but uh, before that, um, and it was say <laughs> it was really interesting. so you kind of put my father out to go out in the restaurant first of all. and it would just be so fascinating to see how people would interact with this person that was quite wobbly on, on their legs and the assumptions and the kind of attitudes that they would have. All of a sudden, he would be this uh, this foreign entity that was moving through space compared to everyone else that was in the restaurant. And it was because of the world that was being created around him. They didn't know anything about him. It was because of how his body appeared and how he walked. So we do this. We do this to ourselves and to others. And there are societal ramifications to this too. There was another um, individual who is also a disability uh, rights activist, um, uh, Norman Kunz, who, who puts it well. He's, and He's talking about in the context of children and uh, schooling, but I think it, we can expand it. He says, all children are children. The perception that some children are normal and others are deficient and therefore need to be repaired in some way is still a concomitant of a society that values uniformity rather than diversity. The potential of heterogeneous education lies in the possibility of redefining society's concept of quote-unquote normalcy. When children are given the right to belong, they are given a right to their diversity. They're wholly welcomed into our neighborhoods as ones who enrich our lives without the construction of rehabilitative hoops through which they must jump in order to become normal enough to belong. This is how society works, doesn't it? We we have notions of what is normal. As I always like to say, our mind is society. It's been shaped by this. And then we have what appear to be normal people more in the center, and then we kind of see other people that we don't see as normal on the edges. We kind of kick them out from the center. This is what the mind does. This is the world that the mind is creating. To see how important it is within this fathom-long body to come to the end of the world, (coughs) to come to the end of that world, because that gives freedom for my life and it gives freedom for the, for the other people in my life as well. So my life and the community that I'm in. So creations of worlds about others and creations of worlds about ourselves. And when I share this, this teaching about you know, bringing an end to this world and how the mind creates these worlds, this is not a philosophical stance. This is something to use skillfully in our lives. You know, the skillful use of this idea of how our minds create worlds. So if someone is throwing rocks at me, I don't say to myself, oh, this is just a creation of the mind and stand there. <laughs> if someone's throwing rocks at me, I get out of the way because it hurts. So it's not to confuse that in that manner. Now, my my mind might create all kinds of worlds about why they're throwing rocks at me. So that's something to investigate, but I don't want that to hinder me getting out of the way of the rocks. So I want to be clear about that as well. So how to practice this. And actually, there's so many different ways. Maybe maybe one way and we'll see uh, where we get after that. And it's the, the teaching on what I'd call just this. If I can just remember that phrase, just this. Oh, well, it's just this. It's not the whole world I've created. It's just this what's in front of me. So an uh, uh, example of this, this is a, a, a short, very short haiku from... Uh, the great haiku poet Basho who when he wrote this uh, poem when he was on pilgrimage um, he had uh, some of you might know the collection of, of his haiku poems from this uh, collection of poems called the, the Narrow Road to the Deep North which is his is really his journals his stories of, of his travels up north in Japan and it was really quite an arduous journey and I think a better translation, really, because when you really hear what he gets, what's in the in the haiku, is um, it's it's really the narrow way within. So he's taking this external journey, but really it's this journey inward that we've been talking about. And supposedly he wrote this haiku when he was um, really in this mountainous region and um, really having a very tough time. The weather was horrible, and the traveling was really uh, difficult, and and finding places to stay was, was quite challenging as he was traveling. And his health wasn't so great. So just three lines. First line, exhausted. Second line, seeking an inn. Third line, ah, wisteria flowers. Exhausted, seeking an inn. Uh, wisteria flowers. I imagine Basho here, hiking in the evening, so exhausted because of the weather and his health. And there he is. All that's on his mind is finding that place to sleep. He's got to find a place to s- sleep. And then there's that moment, right, that he actually sees what's in front of him. Oh, these beautiful wisteria flowers right there in the moment. Ah, wisteria flowers. That's what's going on right now. Do you hear how there's an end of the world in that moment? There's this whole story about, am I going to find an end or not? Am I going to survive to not? or survive tonight or not? Am I going to get food? Oh, here it is. Oh, wisteria flowers. Oh, there's the disappearance of that world, and there he is right now in this moment. It's just this. It's just wisteria flowers. Or maybe with our practice, it would be the moment of just seeing, oh, tiredness is here. Interesting. Oh, and fear and wisteria flowers. It's just this, it's just the mixture of those. I don't have to get lost in that world. I can see what's happening right now. It's just that turn into just this. And it makes a difference, and a kind of intimacy can start to arise with that kind of just this. It reminds me of a story. Um, about a monastic. She um, was a woman who was ordained in the Thai forest tradition and she had, uh, every year they'd go home, usually uh, monastics would have a little bit of time every year to visit family. And every time that she would um, go home, her father uh, most of the time would not talk to her and demand that she put a a hat on her head because he didn't want to see her bald head. And the, the relationship with her father got so tense as a result of her taking this monastic life. And she had been struggling with it again and again and again. So she went to her teacher Ajahn Sumedho and she said, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this in a skillful way from a kind of spiritual perspective? How do I deal with my father? I mean, he is not liking what I'm doing and it's horrible when I get home. And Ajahn Semedo just said three words to her. Don't create him. Just that. What's it like to go into a situation with someone here having difficulty, but not creating them? To see if you can see them anew. Oh, just this. To be aware of the world that I might be creating. To have a newness there. Kind of with this this quality of, who is this? What is this that's right in front of me? And can you respond to what's arising? And of course, when I share this, it doesn't mean if you see somebody new again and they start throwing rocks at you that you would stay there and stand there and not doing anything. (laughs) That's not the skillful use of this. It's just noticing what the mind does and allowing for a different opening around others. And it can really be around anything, around you know, people, around flowers. This just this in the stories that we might be creating and the worlds we might be creating. I'd like to share with you a part of a poem by Marie Howe. I think I, I shared a couple poems by her last week. And again, this is a, a poem that's um, in light of her brother. Her brother, who she was very close to, died of AIDS. And he was someone who really, she felt, was really his her spiritual guide. She learned so much from him. So it was really quite devastating. Much of her poetry is writing about him or to him. And so she describes... Um, at the end of this this poem, The Gate, about him pointing out, you could say, this quality of just this, of really showing up for this moment and stepping out of these complicated worlds that we create. (coughs) And so she says about him, she says, quote, this is what you've been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this. And then he'd hold open, holding open my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this. And sort of look around. So often what we're waiting for is the next moment, not this moment, because the next moment is all about our world and the story that we're creating. It's not about this moment, especially if it's just a cheese and mustard sandwich. But sometimes that is the opening to intimacy and to freedom is to be with whatever's here, even if it's mundane, and the power of that. Because in many ways, that's what we're waiting for, is just to be here for our lives. So maybe we'll take some time to practice that this evening, just this quality of just this. So, in light of that, you might want to stand up and stretch or move around. And we'll uh, begin in uh, in our sitting meditation in in just a minute here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.